Uh, I'm uh, happy to be here and to have the privilege of speaking on two portions from the Gospel of Matthew. I have been in pastoral ministry for about 24 years in three different churches, and then about three years ago, got involved with Toronto Baptist Seminary, uh, largely through the influence of Dr. Michael Haken, who was the principal at the time. Uh, he recruited me to teach systematic theology and a number of other individuals. He was building a team. We were going to work at this for many years to come. I was there about eight months and he told me that he had an irresistible call from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and who can resist such a call? And so he uh, has taken up that position. He's still living in Canada, commuting back and forth, so we're still able to use him at the school, but as a result of his departure, not only do I uh, teach systematics, but the role of principal, which was formerly his, has uh, fallen to me. So it's an interesting time in my life. I, I say to the students, if my high school teachers could see me now, I was uh, not known uh, as one who paid much attention to anything academic in high school. I was far more interested in playing in sports. And if they could see me as a seminary professor and principal of a school, I think that they would feel that there was some kind of justice uh, in the universe. <laughs> but I am enjoying the role and trying hard to prepare people for local church ministry. There's not a lot of schools that we can send students to in Canada, unfortunately. And Toronto Baptist Seminary, which has been in existence since 1927, it's over 80 years old, uh, is a school that has, by God's grace, retained uh, a sense of orthodoxy and is committed to the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. We believe in the importance of the church in the plan of God, and we're trying to train people to be involved in church ministry in a way that will glorify God in the 21st century. And I emphasize that because I think one of the weaknesses of so much that goes under the rubric of reformed is that it would have been great in the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. I'm not sure they've entered the 20th century and uh, the 21st century. That's still an area that needs some thought and consideration. Now, Matthew's gospel is a particularly rich uh, portion of God's word and important when it comes to understanding biblical, or as many here are calling it, New Covenant theology, because it has to do with the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, the Gospel of Matthew, the book of Hebrews, and the New Testament uh, in particular uh, stand out as portions of God's word in which we are forced to grapple with the relationship between the Testaments, the Old and New Testaments. You really can't make sense of these books and preach them properly if you do not uh, consider some of these foundational issues. I'm going to speak in this first session on Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, and then in the second session on Matthew 9, verses 14 uh, to 17. There is some overlap between the two sections, but I think putting them together uh, will be beneficial and, and I trust uh, it will 
remind us of things we already know and perhaps uh, spur us on in terms of application, uh, in uh, looking at things uh, that we still need to consider. When Jesus began his uh, public teaching ministry, he created quite a stir. Uh, part of the commotion had to do with the fact that he was a breath of fresh air. He was not like the Pharisees and, and the teachers of the law, people who were constantly uh, quoting others to substantiate their points and to establish their authority. One of the things that made Jesus so unique was the fact that he taught with authority, not like the teachers of the law, and it was a first-person authority. Uh, he came into the world, and, and he would say things, as we see in the Sermon on the Mount, like, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. In the Beatitudes that uh, start the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, uh, he has the audacity to... Uh, explain to the people who it is that is blessed or approved by God. He takes the word righteousness, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, and he interchanges that word with the word me in the next verse. Blessed are you if you're persecuted because of me. How in the world can he make such a switch moving from righteousness to himself? He talks about being persecuted for his sake and says that his people, when they are persecuted for his sake, are experiencing what the prophets of old experienced when they were persecuted uh, because of their message and their relationship to God. He says that his followers are the light of the world, are the salt of the earth. He takes it upon himself to define what righteousness is. He tells us not to worry, and he gives us the, the loftiest heavenly reasons why that should be the case. And then as the sermon draws to a close, his words of application are full of authority, full of power, when he indicates that in the end, on that great day, that day of judgment, people will stand before him and his verdict will be final. There will be no court of appeal. There will be no second chance. He will render judgment, and his judgment will be irrevocable. He says that we are wise if we hear his words and put them into practice. We are fools if we dismiss what he has to say. Well, all of that kind of material raises a number of important questions. Among them, who is this man? Where does he get this authority? How dare he put himself uh, front and center in terms of the revelation of God? Well, we know that his unique authority is, is uh, derived from his divine sonship. That is perhaps most wonderfully explained in Hebrews chapter 11, or Hebrews chapter 1, rather, verses 1, uh, 2, and 3. This sonship explains his unique authority. We can also say that his authority is derived from his obedience as the God-man, the Theanthropos. He is the, 
the one who is completely obedient to his father. He does what the father does. He says what the father has told him to say. But in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew's gospel, one of the ways that this unique authority reveals itself is in his new and comprehensive grasp of the Old Testament scriptures. And that's really the subject of the verses that we want to look at in this first uh, session, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. And if you have your Bibles, I invite you uh, to turn there. Jesus says, after giving us the Beatitudes, after speaking about his disciples being the salt of the earth, being the light of the world, in verse 17 he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What I want to uh, do in the uh, next few minutes is explain the meaning of verse 17 and then look at the applications or the implications of verse 17 for the law or the Old Testament scriptures, for teachers, and for righteousness, because that's precisely what Jesus does. He makes this foundational statement in verse 17, and then he really applies it in verses 18, 19, and 20. First, to the Old Testament scriptures, secondly, to uh, teachers, and thirdly, to the matter of righteousness. What does Jesus mean when he says that he has not come to abolish the law or the prophets? I have not come to abolish them, he says, but to fulfill them. The law and the prophets refer to the scriptures of Jesus' day, or what we know as the Old Testament scriptures. The law would be a reference to the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The prophets to the rest of the Old Testament scriptures, including what we talk about as the prophets, the major and minor prophets, or uh, according to the Hebrews, the, the latter prophets, but also the former prophets, the books of Joshua on. The writings would also be included in the prophets in Matthew chapter 13, verse 35. Psalm 72, 78, verse 2 is quoted, and it is a psalm of Asaph, and it is said to be spoken by a prophet, as the prophets say, and then the psalm in Psalm uh, 78, verse 2, is quoted. So the Law and the Prophets is a comprehensive way of speaking about the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus says he has not come to abolish them. Abolish means to destroy them or to do away with them. He speaks about not abolishing the Law or the Prophets because there were things that he said 
and things that he did that might give that impression on the surface. For example, already in Matthew chapter 5, before we get to verse 17, Jesus has spoken about the land belonging to his people. Blessed are the earth, blessed are the meek, rather, for they will inherit the earth. He has spoken about peacemakers as being sons or children of God. He has spoken about his followers as being the light of the world. Now, we don't have time this morning to go back and trace the, the Old Testament origins of all of those concepts, the idea of the land, the promised land, uh, peacemaking and peacemakers, uh, his people as the light of the world. But all of those things have an Old Testament background, and all of those things are linked to Israel in one way or another. And Jesus, by taking these Old Testament concepts and applying them to his people, to his children, to his followers, is involved in a reinterpretation of the Old Testament. And on the surface, uh, to listen to him talk, if you were aware of the Old Testament scriptures, one of the things that would come into your mind is, well, who does this guy think he is? Where is he coming from? How is it that he can take what we have heard so many times before and what we always thought we understood and put it in a completely different light and context? Has he no respect for the law and the prophets? Has he come to abolish them? Has he come to destroy them, to do away with them? Is he setting himself over against the law and the prophets? Jesus says, do not think that I have come to do that. Do not think I've come to abolish them. Do not think I've come to destroy them. Do not think I have come to do away with them. It may appear like that on the surface, but my teachings and my actions should not be understood as the abolition of the law and the prophets. Rather, he says... I have come to fulfill them. Now, you're well aware that it's one thing to say, I haven't come to abolish them, I've come to fulfill them. It's another thing, quite another thing, to explain what that means, what in the world he's talking about. I can remember a good number of years now coming into the possession of a book by Greg Bonson, called uh, Theonomic Law, the, uh, you know, God's, God's Law, and it was an it was was exhaustive defense of a particular view of the law based on Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. Theonomy and Christian Ethics, I think it's called. You may have seen that book. You may have read that book. One little tip that I've always found very helpful when assessing books quickly, and uh, sometimes we've got to do that. When somebody takes somebody 100, 200, 300, 400 pages to explain a few verses in Matthew's gospel, or in the case of a a book defending infant baptism, someone gave me this book and said, here, here's a 300-page 
book on the word baptizo. I, I looked at the book and I said, I really don't need to read it, kind of tongue-in-cheek, just to, to disturb the individual <laughs> because they were, very, they were very high on the book. I said, I really don't need to read What do you mean you don't need to read the book? I said, listen, anybody that takes 300 pages to explain to me one Greek word has an ax to grind. I'm immediately suspicious. It's not that complicated, really. And one of the things I remember about Bonson's book is when he tries to explain what it means that Jesus did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill the law is that he works through, well, option one, option two, option three, option four. I, I forget how many there are. He goes through and, no, it's not this, and no, it's not that, and no, it's not something else. And, no, and then finally he gets down to his own obscure uh, interpretation of the, of the passage. And I say obscure because on his way to his own interpretation, he has cast aside almost everybody who's orthodox in the Christian world. And, and that immediately puts you on your guard. And you say, well, I know you're a brilliant fellow, but I'm not quite sure you're that, you're that brilliant. Well, what does fulfill mean? Well, some have suggested that when Jesus says he's come to fulfill the law, he means that he has come to keep the law of God and to make it possible for his followers to do the same. It comes very close to the idea of, of ratifying the law, of reasserting the authority of the law, expounding the law in exhaustive detail. But if that's the case, and others have already pointed this out, if that's the case, if that's what Jesus means, if he means when he says, I've come to fulfill the law, that I've come to keep the law, to, to, to reestablish it, to reassert it, then how could he declare all foods clean? Why don't we have Levitical priests? Why don't we offer animal sacrifices prescribed by God in the Old Testament? Why don't we stone people who work on the seventh day or travel too far on the seventh day? Why don't we keep the feasts of Passover, Tabernacles, or Pentecost? Uh, why don't we wear or worry about wearing clothes made from more than one kind of fiber? Why aren't uh, 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 adulterers and, and homosexuals and, and heretics, for that matter, executed, along with chronically disobedient children. Keeping some aspects of the law doesn't seem to be necessary in this particular time in which we live, according to the teaching of Jesus and the instruction of the apostles. Clearly, some things have changed. Therefore, fulfill cannot simply mean I have come to keep the law or I have come to enforce the law. While keeping the law and the prophets may provide a contrast with abolishing them, and of course that's what everybody's looking for. I've not come to abolish but to fulfill. Well, uh, keeping, abolish, there's a contrast there. You could, you could sustain that kind of argument. While it does provide a contrast, it is not the contrast that Christ has in mind because it becomes clear from the New Testament scriptures 
that we are not required to do things found in the law in the way they were originally laid down in those scriptures. Others come along and say, by fulfill, Jesus is talking about one particular part of the law. And they divide the law into three categories, civil, ceremonial, and moral. Civil laws refer to those laws which governed the nation of Israel, laws which passed away in their Old Testament form when Israel ceased to be a theocratic nation. Ceremonial laws refer to those that regulated the tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrificial system, no longer in force because Jesus has died as the, as the ultimate Lamb of God. But moral laws, they say. Moral laws are those which abide forever because they reflect the moral nature of God, the moral demands of God, and, and they, like God, do not change. And people who argue along this line believe that Jesus came to uphold and explain and enforce these laws in the lives of his people, particularly as those laws are embodied in the Ten Words, in the Ten Commandments. Now the problem with this position is that the text itself does not make these fine distinctions. The distinctions may have some value when it comes to trying to understand the, the, the body of law and to break it down into component parts and to analyze it and understand it, but we have to still acknowledge that the text itself doesn't make those kinds of distinctions. In fact, the text in verse 18 points in the opposite direction because it speaks of nothing passing away from the law until everything is accomplished. We must remember that if you were a Jew living under the old covenant, this idea of some of the law being ceremonial and some of it being civil and some of it being moral is really a lot of nonsense. You couldn't, as a, as a good Jew, say, well, I know that I'm saved by grace through faith. I know that uh, my salvation is secure because of what God will one day do in his Messiah. And that so much of the commandments that we've been given in, in the law have to do with the coming of that Messiah and, and foreshadow his work. And so, therefore... Oh, forget the priests and forget the sacrifices. I'm a man of faith. I'm, I'm ahead of my time. All that's important is that I obey the Ten Commandments. You'd find yourself in a lot of hot water. <laughs> You'd find yourself in grave difficulty because that kind of tripartite distinction, civil, ceremonial, moral, is not a grid, not, a, not a, uh, a structure that is given to us in terms of the Old Testament uh, to help us understand what we're responsible to do and what you know, carries on forever and what is temporary or what will one day be 
laid aside. So when Jesus says that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets, he does not merely mean in the first place that he has come to just do them or, or confirm them, nor is he talking about certain sections of Old Testament revelation that he has come to, uh, you know, to highlight moral law, uh, to, to do the moral law and to teach the moral law and to enforce the moral law in the lives of his, of his people as opposed to other sections of the law. We must look for the meaning of fulfill and fulfillment somewhere else. Well, where do we look? Well, a number of people now. D.A. Carson, Tom Schreiner, uh, Vern Poitras, so lots of others, uh, have argued that we should understand, the best way to understand the word fulfill is to understand it as in the case of prophecy. And they would point us to a text like Matthew chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence. And violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. What are we being told? We are being told by Jesus that the law and the prophets have a prophetic function. They anticipate the coming of the kingdom of heaven. They anticipate the fact that one day God is going to break into human history in the person of his son, the Messiah. In other words, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures, point beyond themselves to the reign of God in Jesus Christ. And that is why Jesus can say in Matthew 5, 17, that he has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And that is why he can say in 5, 18, that nothing will by any means disappear from the law until everything has been accomplished because the truth of the matter is he's come to fulfill it all from Genesis through to Malachi or Genesis through to Chronicles if you were following the order of the Hebrew Bible. But now how does Old Testament, or how does the Old Testament prophesy about Jesus? And the answer to that is, is in both simple and complex ways. Sometimes the Old Testament speaks about Jesus in terms of straightforward prediction. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 speaks about the fact that the coming one would be born in Bethlehem. And... Matthew, in his gospel, chapter 2, verse 5, quotes Micah 5, 2 as being fulfilled with the coming of Jesus and the fact that he was, he was born in that ancient city of David. Or take a prophecy like Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, that speak about the light coming to the Gentiles as a result of the ministry of Messiah. Nations that had, had been in darkness for so long, all of a sudden, uh, the light dawns. And it is the light of the coming of the kingdom of God and the servant of God as he proclaims the truth. And that is seen in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17, as a, as a being fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus. 
What we have to understand is that sometimes the Old Testament prophesies about the coming of Jesus in more complex ways. The book of Hebrews, for instance, makes it clear that the whole sacrificial system points to Christ in one way or another. Hebrews is a masterpiece. I've just finished teaching it uh, this past semester, and it is a wonderful portion of Scripture. The insights to be gained from the careful way in which the writer or the preacher, really, of the book uh, unpacks the Old Testament. He, the, 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 the truth is that the, the uh, author of the letter to the Hebrews reads the Old Testament scriptures much more carefully than most of us do. And so as he meditates upon Genesis chapter 14, and he sees in a book of genealogies a king-priest appear with no genealogy, He makes note of that point. And then when he reads Psalm 110 and he finds David speaking about his Lord and he finds David talking about the Lord of his Lord, swearing concerning his Lord that he is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, where have I seen that name before? Genesis 14, and only Genesis 14. Oh yeah, he's that strange fellow who appears and, and, and blesses Abraham, and Abraham gives him a tenth of, of, uh, of the, of the, of the uh, plunder. And then making the connections in a most glorious and wonderful way, he goes on to speak about the uniqueness of, of Jesus, the priest whose priesthood transcends that of of, of the Aaronic priesthood. The priesthood is unique because he has everlasting life. The priesthood, when he offers himself as a sacrifice for sin, only has to offer himself once, for by one sacrifice he removes forever the sins of his people. Well, you go back and read Hebrews, and it's a wonderful example of the law and the prophets not being abolished by Jesus, but being fulfilled by Jesus. Or take Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Out of Egypt I've called my son. Matthew 2, verse 15 says that that scripture was fulfilled when Mary and Joseph, along with uh, young Jesus, returned from Egypt. They'd fled to Egypt to escape the wrath of Herod. They returned from Egypt, and, and in their return, they are, they are fulfilling Hosea 11, verse 1. I had a teacher in Bible school who told our class in Matthew that if we interpreted the Old Testament the way Matthew interpreted the Old Testament, we'd get an F. <laughs> he deserved an F. <laughs> Matthew knew what he was doing. Not only was he being carried along by the Holy Spirit, but I, I do believe that Matthew understood the Old Testament a little bit better than my professor. What did Matthew understand about the Old Testament? Matthew understood that Jesus, the true Israel, recapitulates, if you like, 
the experience of Israel. The history of Israel as a nation uh, is prophetic and anticipates the glorious one who was to come. And so Matthew wasn't blowing smoke. He wasn't just pulling texts out of the air uh, to make his case. No, this does fulfill what was written of old. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. The same, of, the same is true of the temptation of our Lord. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Where does that come from? Well, that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. Israel tested in the wilderness. Israel in the wilderness because of their unbelief. Israel wandering because they refuse to obey the command of God and enter in. Jesus who comes, not only as the second Adam, but Jesus who comes as the true Israel, will be faithful where the first Israel failed. He will demonstrate under the greatest duress that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The Exodus itself, that great redemptive event of the Old Testament, where God with a mighty hand brings a nation out of its political bondage in Egypt, delivers them from Pharaoh, the great leader of the superpower of the day. But that Old Testament deliverance pales when compared to the Exodus that Jesus accomplished at Jerusalem. The exodus of his cross where he died in order to secure the deliverance of his people from a one even more to be feared than Pharaoh. And so in all of these ways, we see Jesus has not come to abolish the law. Oh, no. He has come to fulfill it. In fact, the laws of the Old Testament speak of the righteousness of the Christ who should fulfill them. And if we're careful, depending on how we work this out, they anticipate the righteousness of a people that will be born as a result of his redemptive activity. I like to tell my students, you know, when you get to heaven, when we all arrive there in the new heavens and new earth, the Lord may have a class for us where he sorts us out theologically. I don't doubt that. And that's going to be a very interesting session. I, I, don't, I really don't even think we're going to need mics at the front of that for people to come and ask questions. I think as a master teacher, he will make it explicitly clear for us. What a day that will be. Imagine all those questions that we, we don't have answers to. Uh, he, will, he will tell us at least as much as we're able to, uh, to take in at the time. And then for the rest of eternity, we'll continue to learn about uh, the wonders of himself and, and uh, all of his works. But one thing he won't do on that day is sit us down and say, now, we've got to go over here the house rules of the new heavens and new earth. <laughs> we're so pleased to have you all here. But if we're going to get along, there are a few things you need to keep in mind. Number one, number two, number three, number four. No, it's not going to happen. Why? Well, because when the work of redemption has run its course, when all that Jesus died to accomplish is complete in us. We will be free from sin. And we will do from the heart 
what we long to do now, but find ourselves, even as redeemed sinners, unable to do. We will do the will of God to his honor and to his glory. Well, that old law in different ways anticipates that day and that people. The wisdom literature finds its fulfillment in him who is the wisdom of God. I was recently doing some messages on the, on the uh, book of Daniel and in just studying again the, the structure of the opening seven chapters, I was struck by the fact that here's another example of, of Matthew 5, 17. I've not come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill the law. If you know anything just very quickly about, about Daniel, you'll know that one of the unique characteristics of it is that the uh, first chapter and the first uh, four verses of chapter two are written in Hebrew. And then there's an Aramaic section that goes to the end of chapter seven. And then chapters eight through 12 are, are in Hebrew again. Now, Aramaic is the kind of English of, the, of, of that day. It was the, the language of, of the empire. It was the, it was the language of, of, the, of business in the world. So when, when, when you see a switch from Hebrew to Aramaic, uh, you should immediately think to yourself, well, God has something to say, not just to, to Jews, not just some to Israel, but to everybody. He's got a message he wants everybody to hear. And then when you look more carefully at the Aramaic section, Daniel 2, 4, through the end of Daniel 7, you find there's a chiastic structure there that is a, a mirror kind of structure so that the chapters are, are paired. So that chapter 2 goes with chapter 7, chapter 3 goes with chapter 6, chapter 4 goes with chapter 5. And, and, and it's important to see that because we have then within the context of Daniel a hermeneutical kind of key to help us understand and to interpret the book. And Lord knows people need that. <laughs> you know what they've done to the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. We, it's, it's very helpful that the Lord gives us keys to help us make sense of the material. But in terms of the, the point I'm making here this morning, Daniel 2, you know, there's that, there's that vision there that Nebuchadnezzar has of the, the, the great image, and he's the head of gold, the, uh, a kind of pseudo-Adam, the, 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 the king of kings, the, the, the man who, who seems to dominate the earth at the time. And then after him, there are these other kingdoms, each inferior to, to the one before. But in the days of the last kingdom, there is a... A stone that is cut out without hands. And, and it, it destroys all these kingdoms. It, it grinds them to powder. They're, they're blown away like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. Now there in chapter 2, you know, we, we're left with a lot of questions. But when you appreciate the chiastic structure and you understand that chapter 2 is linked to chapter 7, well, guess what happens? You know what happens in chapter 7. Ah, Daniel has a vision. And in his vision, what does he see? He says, we well, sees one like the Ancient of Days. And who does he see? He sees one like a son of man approaching the Ancient of Days. And, and what is given to that son of man? Authority and power and a kingdom is given to that son of man. A, 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 a kingdom that will never, ever pass away. And so there within Daniel, you've got chapter 2 being interpreted by chapter 7. You understand the meaning of the stone. There is more clarity, even though it's wrapped in Old Testament garb and symbolism. And so, in this way, the law is not abolished. The prophets are not abolished. They are wonderfully fulfilled. And even the structure of the book 
anticipates the glory of our Lord who was to come. Well, since Jesus lies at the heart of God's plan and revelation, it shouldn't be a surprise that, that the Old Testament, that we find the Old Testament speaking of Jesus everywhere. And, and that's, what we, that's what we do find. We find that, that he is in the tabernacle, in the temple. We find that he is you know, tied in with the sacrificial system. The promises of a new covenant, not like the one made with Israel at Mount Sinai. Uh, the Sabbath. You can't understand the Sabbath unless you, unless you connect it to Jesus Christ, something that's uh, clearly done in his teaching and, and in the New Testament scriptures. The feasts of the, of the Passover and of tabernacles and of Pentecost. He is the mediator that the people requested. We can't speak to this God. Moses, you speak to us on our behalf. God says, oh, that's a good thing. That's, that, that's uh, something actually that the Israelites have asked for that's, that's worthy of note. But of course, in the end, not even Moses is a great enough mediator. Not even Moses can lead the people into the promised land. Joshua, Jesus must do that. But even a greater than that Old Testament, Joshua. He is the perfect judge. Israel had a lot of judges, but they had feet of clay. Jesus is the perfect judge. He's the prophet greater than Moses, the priest greater than Aaron. He's the king greater than David. He's the blessed man of Psalm 1. He's the anointed one of Psalm 2. He's the lamb slain. He's the true Israel. He's the son on whom the father's favor rests. And he's able to bring his people into a promised land. And it's not real estate in Palestine. It's a new heavens and new earth, the home of righteousness. Now, the prophecy fulfillment structure that I've been talking about here explains why some things change with the coming of Jesus and with the inauguration of the kingdom of heaven. What I mean by that is that prophecy by its very nature is provisional. Prophecy anticipates the reality that is to come. When God's work is complete, the scaffolding that was erected during the time of construction comes down, and it is no longer necessary. And that's precisely what we've got going on when we see the scriptures in terms of prophecy, promise, fulfillment. This, this contrast that I believe Jesus is getting at, I didn't come to abolish, I came to fulfill. Prophecy by its very nature is provisional. It is, it is temporary. It is anticipatory. It, it is not the reality. It is a shadow of that which is to come. And when the reality comes in all of its glory, then we're in a better position to assess all the preliminary work that was done by God, all the preparation that was done to get his people ready for the fulfillment. Another aspect of fulfillment that needs to be noted before I quickly move to the implications of Jesus' words in those verses, and I'll do that quite quickly. Another aspect of fulfillment that needs to be noted is not only does Jesus not keep the law in its Old Testament form, and I'll say more about that in just a second, He's not, he's not talking about keeping the law in his Old Testament form, but, but the law finding its fulfillment in him. But he dies, one, this is the, the, another aspect of fulfillment, he dies to produce the righteousness 
that it anticipated and demanded. And I think that's very important. So when he says, I didn't come to abolish, I came to fulfill it, it's not only saying, I, I, I haven't come just to keep the Old Testament law in its Old Testament form, but to fulfill it, to, to, uh, to be the reality of which it spoke, to bring into reality the, the, the uh, things that were anticipated. But part of this fulfillment is his death on the cross, which makes all of these realities possible. So in a very profound sense, we must remember at the beginning of Matthew's gospel that the one who is teaching us on this occasion, I, I always say this to my students, you, know, you get into this question about the Beatitudes, is this some kind of works righteousness that's being talked about? No, no, no. Why? You've got to remember that the, the teacher here is on a journey. Where is he going to? He's going to the cross. That's where he's going. The one who speaks about the righteousness that, that is required by God is the one who is going to produce that righteousness by his death upon the cross. He's the one who is, who is going to be righteous himself and die the just for the unjust to bring us to God. He's going to bring about a transformation so radical that when all is said and done, to be in him is to be brand new. To be in him is to be part of the new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And so I think in, in his own mind, these words were profound, full of meaning. Oh, don't you dare say I've come to abolish that law. No, no, no. And when the gospel of Matthew has been fully told, we understand what that means. Oh, I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. And some of those aspects of fulfillment are very, very painful and very, very costly. It cost this teacher his life. He died in fulfillment of that law. And we must never, ever, ever forget that. Now, the implications of Jesus' words. Very quickly, Theology is, is interrelated. You start monkeying around with one aspect of theology and you will inevitably mess up other areas of theology. That's why we've got to be so careful. And it's why. It's one of the many things I've appreciated about uh, John Riesinger over the years is his uh, sense of balance and proportion. Uh, and and the, the wisdom, I think, that the, the Lord has given him to know that you know, you, you tinker here, and boy, you find, well, I, I, didn't, I didn't mean to make changes here, here, and there, but my tinkering over here has done just that. Oh, dear. And so you try to fix this, and you find, oh, and this goes out of kilter. And, and, and it, it's very, very important to go as far as Scripture goes and stop. I mean, I think we've seen that over the course of this conference in the, in the presentations that have been given and the, the different questions and answers. I know it's been brought home very powerful to me, you know, going from the pulpit, as it were, kind of into the classroom and you get to the, the question of students. I find myself over and over saying, particularly, you know, when you're in the early chapters of Genesis, but not just there, over and over again saying, you know, I don't know. It's one, it's one phrase that all uh, teachers have to learn and never forget, I don't know. That's a good question. That's a really good question. I have no idea. I'll tell you what I do know. I'll tell you what I think is clear. But yeah, you're right. 
It'd be interesting to know the answer to that question. But it's beyond me. Well, there are some implications that Jesus has traced out for us. These I'm certain about because he's gone ahead of me and I'm just following in his footsteps. I always feel safest when I'm thinking God's thoughts after him. <laughs> I, don't, I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't run ahead of him, can I? None of us can. But some people almost, yeah, they try. <laughs> some people try. Okay, the implications of Jesus' words. Uh, in verse 18, Truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is fulfilled. At the very least, these words speak of Jesus' high regard for the Old Testament scriptures. There's a formula that's used there. Truly I tell you. It conveys something solemn, something serious. Now, any word that Jesus speaks, we ought to pay attention to. But when he says, truly I say to you, when he underlines it, we really need to pay attention. What does he say? Till heaven and earth disappear. Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. The smallest letter, uh, perhaps referring to the smallest letter of the a Hebrew letter, the yod, the least stroke of the pen, the, the, the seraph that distinguishes various characters in Hebrew. What he's saying is that, that down to the smallest detail, nothing will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. At the, at the most basic level, this is a strong assertion of the authority and the inerrancy of the written Old Testament scriptures. And we need to appreciate that. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And Paul has in mind particularly Old Testament scripture because the New Testament was still being written. That's not to say that he denies that for New Testament scripture, but I mean, he's, he's uh, most directly referring to Old Testament. Then as New Testament scripture uh, is written, it comes under the same kind of um, umbrella. The, the, the scriptures do not become the word of God as they grab a hold of us. They are the word of God, whether anybody believes them or not. And we must affirm the same in this day. You know, there's a lot of very subtle attacks upon the Old Testament. Oh, you know, that God of the Old Testament. He was a bloodthirsty personage. Oh, I'm so glad we live in, 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 in these uh, times here. And Jesus, you know, he's... Paul, of course, was that uh, homophobic, uh, woman-hating uh, rabbi who, who uh, was conflicted in so many different ways, needed to see a good therapist. But, oh, Jesus is so open and so, so uh, loving. Uh, be careful. Careful. There's a day of judgment coming. There is a place called hell. And when God does deal with sin and uncleanness, The wrath that was seen to some degree in the Old Testament will be fully seen and, and appreciated by this world. No, we don't want to start devaluating Old Testament scripture. We must not do that. Jesus says don't do it. He says uh, none of it will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. His words also say something about a timeline of fulfillment until everything is accomplished, I think means 
that not everything is going to be fulfilled at once. The law, or the Old Testament, was fulfilled when Jesus came. It, fulfilled, it was uh, parts of it were being fulfilled during his ministry on earth. So some of it was being fulfilled in his incarnation. Some of it during his ministry on earth. Some of it during his death upon the cross. Some of it during his burial, his resurrection, his ascension on high. I mean, so much of the Old Testament, there's all kinds of things in the Old Testament. The Hebrews picks this up, very rich theme about, about what took place when Jesus ascended on high. He ascended there as, as, as the God-man took our humanity to the right hand of God as our great high priest, ordained through his sufferings, offered that great sacrifice, ever lives to make intercession for us. But there are aspects of the Old Testament that are being presently fulfilled in this age as the gospel is preached. And there are aspects of the Old Testament that I believe will yet be fulfilled in the return of Christ and in the glory that is to come. Old Testament scripture, then, is something that we need to rightly understand and properly preach. My contention when I'm battling paedo-baptism, you know, sometimes they'll say, well, you know, you... You Baptists, all of, your, all of your teachings based on the New Testament. And our teaching is based upon the continuity between circumcision and baptism in the Old and New Testament. I say, just a second, you guys don't understand the New Testament because you don't understand the Old Testament. Don't give me that. Don't give me that we've got the New Testament, you've got the whole thing figured out. No, if you understood the Old Testament was going on there, you'd have got the New Testament right. The, the, the two of them go together. So don't, we shouldn't be, you know, kind of bullied away from, uh, you know, by, by these guys saying, oh, no, we, we have received the whole revelation of God. No, we do too. We receive that whole revelation of God, and we believe in the, in the inerrancy of the Old Testament, and the authority of the Old Testament, and we believe that, that we can preach Christ from the Old Testament, and there's all kinds of ways to preach Christ from the Old Testament, because Christ is everywhere in the Old Testament. And so, although there are covenants, and although there are at least two dispensations, more important than covenants and dispensations is what? The Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. He holds the thing together. And so, we must uh, preach him. And that leads me to my implications for teachers. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. These commands refer to the whole Old Testament scriptures, the entire Old Testament scriptures, as they are fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. I'm a little uncomfortable personally with, we've got continuity and discontinuity. We've got to be careful that we don't overreact. We've got to be careful that we, we, we don't make too much of the continuity. We also have to be careful we don't make too much of the discontinuity. I'm not the least bit afraid to say yeah, I'm bound by everything in the Old Testament. People ask me, do you think the Sabbath is, is a moral law? Uh, are, are you a Sabbath keeper? And I, in my own perverse way, say, yes, I am. Now, I, I've got to explain to you what I mean by that. <laughs> Matter of fact, I believe that if you don't keep the Sabbath, you're going to be cut off from the covenant eternally. But now, let me explain what I mean. <laughs> I see the Sabbath as anticipating what? Salvation rest in Jesus Christ. Fellowship with God that was broken by the fall, that is restored by the mediator. 
and I believe that I keep the Sabbath. Yes, I do, as I flee for refuge in him, as I rest in him. And I believe that anybody who does not flee for refuge in him will be cut off from the covenant eternally. So I've got myself in some trouble with this sometimes, but I, I, I really reject and bristle at this thing well. Now, you don't appreciate the sanctity of the law of God. Well, yes, I do. I take Matthew 5, 17 through 20 very, very seriously. I, I don't believe Jesus has come to abolish. I believe he's come to fulfill it. And those commands are certainly moral law. The whole thing's moral law, if you want to put it that way, that's binding upon me as it is interpreted in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that makes all the difference in the world. And that's, I think, what we must insist upon. Must not, we don't want to, I don't want to give away too much ground. Say, so, oh, well, you know, you guys have picked up an aspect of truth. No, 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 no. No, this is the center of truth. Make no mistake about it. This is the center of truth. Anything else is peripheral. We're talking about the heart of, of biblical Christianity, not just New Testament Christianity, biblical Christianity. Uh, Carson says, how can you talk on Matthew 5, 17 without quoting Don Carson. The law is properly obeyed by conforming to Jesus' word. As it points to him, so he, in fulfilling it, establishes what continuity it has, the true direction to which it points, and the way uh, in which it is to be obeyed. Or uh, Schreiner, more recently in his biblical theology or New Testament theology, if you haven't got that, you really should. It is just a fantastic a piece of work. Uh, Tom says, says there on page uh, 630, in summary, the Matthean view of the law is complex. The law points to and is fulfilled in Jesus. The law finds its climax in the arrival of the kingdom and the coming of Jesus as Messiah, the Lord, the Son of Man, the Son of God. He is the sovereign interpreter and Lord of the Mosaic law. In some instances, Jesus corrects a wrong interpretation of Old Testament law. Now that Christ has come, there is both discontinuity and continuity with regards to the law. Some of the norms of the law continue to be enforced with the arrival of the kingdom and the coming of Jesus. Other prescriptions of the law are no longer enforced. The entire law must be interpreted in light of the coming of Jesus the Christ. And that's the key statement. That's how we sort it out. We look for Christ. That's why Spurgeon got it right so many times. You know, people say, oh, well, Spurgeon, you know, taking texts here and there. And, and you know, if you, if you read Spurgeon, you know, some of the most wonderful gospel messages come out of the most obscure Old Testament texts. And you read that and you think, oh, bro, I don't know how you did that, brother. It's a great message, but did you abuse the text? You know, I find that Spurgeon, more often than not, doesn't abuse the text. Spurgeon just knew his Bible so well that he saw connections that aren't immediately apparent to some of his critics. And so he's able to move from what seems to be obscure in the beginning, and then he's able to place it in its larger settings, its different you know, Old Testament, New Testament, canonical context, to use more recent language, and legitimately get to Christ and preach Christ in a winsome and powerful way. And that's what we need to do. True greatness, according to Jesus here in this verse, is tied to Christ-centeredness. 
And we need that today. We need that. There's so many denominations. There's so many groups. One of the things I'm concerned about with the present kind of reformed resurgence, you know, young, restless, and reformed, yeah, that's all great as long as we don't have another kind of holy priesthood of scholar pastors who start dictating to everybody what to do and what to think. There's far too much uh, kind of spiritual superstardom that's emerged all of a sudden within uh, the so-called reform camp. Unfortunately, I've lived long enough, I hate to say that, I hate to admit it, but I've lived long enough to you know, gone through one wave of that and it eventually crumbles to see another generation kind of exalt a new group of gurus that'll crumble. We must not do that. Our focus must be on Jesus Christ. It's not on our publishing industries. It's not on our, our little market projects that we have. It's not on our elaborate conferences. It's on Jesus Christ preaching him from the center of the scriptures and trying to unite all of the people of God around that risen Lord. That's our task. Uh, I hope we don't lose sight of that. And lastly, there's something said here about righteousness. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The righteousness of the Pharisees and teachers of the law was an external legal righteousness. For them, the law and the prophets were a means to an end. They gave them something to do before God, something to possess that was a matter of pride. What Jesus is really saying here is that as good as the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were, and they were. I mean, they were the equivalent of the sort of evangelicals of our day, if you like. We don't like saying that necessarily, but they were. They were really, you know, pretty impressive people, outwardly speaking. But the point of this is as good as they were, they weren't good enough. Why? Why? What was the great flaw? See, there's this new perspective, all this stuff that's come in, I think often fails to appreciate the underlying human problem. One of the problems with the new perspective is that it starts with, with what God's doing, or tries to start with what God's doing with Israel. And what, it forgets that what God is doing with Israel is part of a larger story. I mean, the, God, the Bible starts back in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. And what's going on with Israel is part of that larger story. The problem with the Pharisees, and it's a problem with fallen humanity, is that they fail to see that human righteousness, human deeds, human pride, human accomplishment doesn't count for anything when it comes to God. That our righteousness must come from on high. Our righteousness is an alien righteousness, as it were, that comes from another. And who is that other? Well, it is the righteous man, the man Christ Jesus. And so Jesus says here, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And of course, why, why was their righteousness inadequate? Because they didn't appreciate, they didn't follow the law. The law that they studied and memorized probably knew more of it than we do by memory. They didn't follow the law to Jesus. Why didn't they follow the law to Jesus? They didn't follow the law to Jesus because they didn't realize they didn't appreciate that they needed someone. See, that's the, that's the heart of the problem. The fact that they were content with the law as it was indicated that they had completely missed the point. The law, had they understood it, would have 
brought them to Jesus as the, as the best news they've ever heard. <laughs> this is the one we're looking for. And that was, his, that was his word of condemnation regarding them. You know, in John 5, you know, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have a life, but you won't come to me. There's no life found in the Old Testament scriptures if it doesn't bring us to Jesus. He's the life that's there. And that's what he's talking about. Don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. No, no, no. I have not come to abolish them, but in the most glorious way, in a way that nobody could understand when he first spoke those words. I have come to fulfill them. And if we could be transported back in our minds and stand at the foot of the cross and see him there, then think about these words. Oh, it's come to fulfill them. Yes, indeed. And when we see him coming in glory and power at the end of the age, ah, perhaps these words will come to mind again. It's come to fulfill them. Ah, yes, he has. And the glory of that is that we're part of that fulfillment. We're part of that family. We're part of that new Israel. We're part of that new humanity, that new creation. Yes, people like you and I, by God's grace, 